Chapter 49 of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Durrett. Chapter 49 Conquest of Italy by the Franks, Part 4. It was after the Nicene Synod and under the reign of the pious Irene that the popes consummated the separation of Rome and Italy by the translation of the empire to the less orthodox Charlemagne. They were compelled to choose between the rival nations. Religion was not the sole motive of their choice, and while they dissembled the failings of their friends, they beheld with reluctance and suspicion the Catholic virtues of their foes. The difference of language and manners had perpetrated the enmity of the two capitals, and they were alienated from each other by the hostile opposition of seventy years. In that schism, the Romans had tasted of freedom and the popes of sovereignty. Their submission would have exposed them to the revenge of a jealous tyrant, and the revolution of Italy had betrayed the impotence as well as the tyranny of the Byzantine court. The Greek emperors had restored the images but they had not restored the Calabrian estates and the Illyrian diocese, which the iconoclasts had torn away from the successors of St. Peter. And Pope Adrian threatens them with a sentence of excommunication unless they speedily abjure this practical heresy. The Greeks were now orthodox, but their religion might be tainted by the breath of the reigning monarch, the Franks were now contumacious, but a discerning eye might discern their approaching conversion from the use to the adoration of images. The name of Charlemagne was stained by the polemic acrimony of his scribes, but the conqueror himself conformed with the temper of a statesman to the various practice of France and Italy. In his four primages, or visits to the Vatican, he embraced the popes in the communion of friendship and piety, knelt before the tomb, and consequently before the image of the apostle, and joined without scruple in all the prayers and processions of the Roman liturgy. Would prudence or gratitude allow the pontiffs to renew, renounce rather their benefit? Had they a right to alienate his gift of the exarchate? Had they power to abolish his government of Rome? The title of patrician was below the merit and greatness of Charlemagne, and it was only by reviving the Western Empire that they could pay their obligations or secure their establishment. By this decisive measure, they would finally eradicate the claims of the Greeks from the debasement of a provincial town, 
the majesty of Rome would be restored, the Latin Christians would be united under the supreme head in their ancient metropolis, and the conquerors of the West would receive their crown from the successors of St. Peter. The Roman Church would acquire a zealous and respectable advocate, and under the shadow of the Carlovingian power, the bishop might exercise with honor and safety the government of the city. Before the ruin of paganism in Rome, the competition for a wealthy bishopric had often been productive of tumult and bloodshed. The people was less numerous, but the times were more savage, the prize more important, and the chair of St. Peter was fiercely disputed by the leading ecclesiastics who aspired to the rank of sovereign. The reign of Adrian I surpasses the measure of past or succeeding ages. The walls of Rome, the sacred patrimony, the ruin of the Lombards, and the friendship of Charlemagne were the trophies of his fame. He secretly edified the throne of his successors and displayed in a narrow space the virtues of a great prince. His memory was revered, but in the next election, a priest of the Lateran, Leo III, was preferred to the nephew and the favorite of Adrian, whom he had promoted to the first dignities of the church. Their acquiescence or repentance disguised above four years the blackest intention of revenge till the day of a procession when a furious band of conspirators dispersed the unarmed multitude and assaulted with blows and wounds the sacred person of the Pope. But their enterprise on his life or liberty was disappointed, perhaps by their own confusion and remorse. Leo was left for dead on the ground. On his revival from the swoon, the effect of his loss of blood, he recovered his speech and sight, and this natural event was improved to the miraculous restoration of his eyes and tongue, of which he had been deprived, twice deprived, by the knife of the assassins. From his prison he escaped to the Vatican. The Duke of Spoleto hastened to his rescue. Charlemagne sympathized in his injury, and in his camp of Paderborn in Westphalia accepted or solicited a visit from the Roman pontiff. Leo repassed the Alps with a commission of counts and bishops, the guards of his safety, and the judges of his innocence, and it was not without reluctance that the conqueror of the Saxons delayed till the ensuing year the personal discharge of this pious office. In his fourth and last pilgrimage, he was received at Rome with the due honors of king and patrician. Leo was permitted to purge himself by oath of the crimes imputed to his charge. His enemies were silenced, and a sacrilegious attempt against his life was punished by the mild 
an insufficient penalty of exile. On the festival of Christmas, the last year of the 8th century, Charlemagne appeared in the church of St. Peter, and to gratify the vanity of Rome, he had exchanged the simple dress of his country for the habit of a patrician. After the celebration of the holy mysteries, Leo suddenly placed a precious crown on his head, and the dome resounded with the acclamations of the people, long life and victory to Charles, the most pious Augustus, crowned by God, the great and pacific emperor of the Romans. The head and body of Charlemagne were consecrated by the royal unction. After the example of the Caesars, he was saluted or adored by the pontiff. His coronation oath represents a promise to maintain the faith and privileges of the church, and the first fruits were paid in his rich offerings to the shrine of his apostle. In his familiar conversation, the emperor protested the ignorance of the intentions of Leo, which he would have disappointed by his absence on that memorable day. But the preparations of the ceremony must have disclosed the secret, and the journey of Charlemagne reveals his knowledge and expectation. He had acknowledged that the imperial title was the object of his ambition, and a Roman synod had promised that it was the only adequate reward of his merit and services. The appellation of great has been often bestowed and sometimes deserved, but Charlemagne is the only prince in whose favor the title has been indissolubly blended with the name. That name, with the addition of saint, is inserted in the Roman calendar, and the saint, by a rare felicity, is crowned with the praises of the historians and philosophers of an enlightened age. His real merit is doubtless enhanced by the barbarism of the nation and the times from which he emerged, but the apparent magnitude of an object is likewise enlarged by the unequal comparison, and the ruins of Palmyra derive a casual splendor from the nakedness of the surrounding desert. Without injustice to his fame, I may discern some blemishes in the sanctity and greatness of the restorer of the Western Empire. Of his moral virtues, chastity is not the most conspicuous, but the public happiness could not be materially injured by his nine wives or concubines, the various indulgence of meaner or more transient amours, the multitude of his bastards whom he bestowed on the church, and the long celibacy and licentious manners of his daughters, whom the father was suspected of loving with too fond a passion. <clears throat> I shall be scarcely permitted to accuse the ambition of a conqueror, but in a day of equal retribution, the sons of his brother, Carloman, the Merovingian princes of Aquitaine, 
and the four thousand five hundred Saxons who were beheaded on the same spot would have something to allege against the justice and humanity of Charlemagne. His treatment of the vanquished Saxons was an abuse of the right of conquest. His laws were not less sanguinary than his arms, and in the discussion of his motives, whatever is subtracted from bigotry must be imputed to temper. The sedentary reader is amazed by his incessant activity of mind and body, and his subjects and enemies were not less astonished at his sudden presence at the moment when they believed his at the most distant extremity of the empire. Neither peace nor war nor summer nor winter were a season of repose, and our fancy cannot easily reconcile the annals of his reign with the geography of his expeditions. But this activity was a national rather than a personal virtue. The vagrant life of a Frank was spent in the chase, in pilgrimage, in military adventures, and the journeys of Charlemagne were distinguished only by a more numerous train and a more important purpose. His military renown must be tried by the scrutiny of his troops, his enemies, and his actions. Alexander conquered with the arms of Philip, but the two heroes were preceded, who preceded Charlemagne bequeathed his, their name, their examples, and the companions of their victories. At the head of his veteran and superior armies, he oppressed the savage or degenerate nations who were incapable of confederating for their common safety, nor did he ever encounter an equal antagonist in numbers, in discipline, or in arms. The science of war had been lost and revived with the arts of peace, but his campaigns are not illustrated by any siege or battle of singular difficulty and success, and he might behold with envy the Saracen trophies of his grandfather. After the Spanish expedition, his rear guard was defeated in the Pyrenean mountains, and the soldiers whose situation was irretrievable and whose valor was useless might accuse with a last breath the want of skill or caution of their general. I touch with reverence the laws of Charlemagne, so highly applauded by the respectable judge. They compose not a system, but a series of occasional and minute edicts for the correction of abuses, the reformation of manners, the economy of his farms, the care of his poultry, and even the sale of his eggs. He wished to improve the laws and the character of the Franks, and his attempts, however feeble and imperfect, are deserving of praise. The inveterate evils of the times were suspended or mollified by his government, but in his institutions I can seldom discover the general views and the immortal spirit of a legislature 
who survives himself for the benefit of posterity. The union and stability of his empire depended on the life of a single man. He imitated the dangerous practice of dividing his kingdoms among his sons, and after his numerous diets, the whole constitution was left to fluctuate between the disorders of anarchy and despotism. His esteem for the piety and knowledge of the clergy tempted him to entrust that aspiring order of temporal dominion and civil jurisdiction, and his son Louis, when he was stripped and degraded by the bishops, might accuse in some measure the imprudence of his father. His laws enforced the imposition of tithes, because the daemons had proclaimed in the air that the default of payment had been the cause of the last scarcity. The literary merits of Charlemagne are attested by the foundation of schools, the introduction of arts, the works which were published in his name, and his familiar connection with the subjects and strangers whom he invited to his court to educate both the prince and people. His own studies were tardy, laborious, and imperfect. If he spoke Latin and understood Greek, he derived the rudiments of knowledge from conversation rather than from books, and in his mature age the emperor strove to acquire the practice of writing, which every peasant now learns in his infancy. The grammar and logic, the music and astronomy of the times were only cultivated as the handmaids of superstition, but the curiosity of the human mind must ultimately tend to its improvement, and the encouragement of learning reflects the purest and most pleasing luster on the character of Charlemagne. The dignity of his person, the length of his reign, the prosperity of his arms, the vigor of his government, and the reverence of distant nations distinguish him from the royal crowd, and Europe dates a new era from his restoration of the Western Empire. That empire was not unworthy of its title, and some of the fairest kingdoms of Europe were the patrimony or conquest of a prince who reigned at the same time in France, Spain, Italy, Germany, and Hungary. The Roman province of Gaul had been transformed into the name and monarchy of France, but in the decay of the Merovingian line its limits were contracted by the independence of the Britons and the revolt of Aquitaine. Charlemagne pursued and confined the Britons on the shores of the ocean, and that ferocious tribe whose origin and language are so different from the French was chastised by the imposition of tribute, hostages, and peace. After a long and evasive contest, the rebellion of the dukes of Aquitaine was punished by the forfeiture of their province, their liberty, and their lives. Harsh and rigorous would have been such treatment of ambitious governors who had too faithfully copied the mayors of the palace. 
but a recent discovery has proved that these unhappy princes were the last and lawful heirs of the blood and scepter of Clovis and younger branch from the brother of Dacobert of the Merovingian house. Their ancient kingdom was reduced to the duchy of Gastoigne, to the counties of Fersenrach and Armagnac at the foot of the Pyrenees. Their race was propagated till the beginning of the 16th century, and after surviving their Carlovingian tyrants, they were reserved to feel the injustice or the favors of a third dynasty. By the reunion of Aquitaine, France was enlarged to its present boundaries with the additions of the Netherlands and Spain as far as the Rhine. The Saracens had been expelled from France by the grandfather and father of Charlemagne, but they still possessed the greatest part of Spain from the rock of Gibraltar to the Pyrenees. Amidst their civil divisions, an Arabian emir of Saragossa implored his protection in the Diet of Paderhorn. Charlemagne undertook the expedition, restored the emir, and without distinction of faith, impartially crushed the resistance of the Christians and rewarded the obedience and services of the Mohammedans. In his absence, he instituted the Spanish march, which extended from the Pyrenees to the river Ebro. Barcelona was the residence of the French governor. He possessed the counties of Roussillon and Catalonia, and the infant kingdoms of Navarre and Aragon were subject to his jurisdiction. As king of the Lombards and patrician of Rome, he reigned over the greatest part of Italy, a tract of a thousand miles from the Alps to the borders of Calabria. The Duchy of Beneventum, a Lombard fief, had spread at the expense of the Greeks over the modern kingdom of Naples. But Arrakis, the reigning duke, refused to be included in the slavery of his country, assumed the independent title of prince, and opposed his sword to the Carlovingian monarchy. His defense was firm, his submission was not inglorious, and the emperor was content with an easy tribute, the demolition of his fortresses, and the acknowledgment on his coins of a supreme lord. The artful flattery of his son Grimoald added the appellation of father, but he asserted his dignity with prudence, and Benventum insensibly escaped from the French yoke. Charlemagne was the first who united Germany under the same scepter. The name of Oriental France is preserved in the circle of Franconia, and the people of Hesse and Thuringia were recently incorporated with the Alemanni, no formidable to the Romans, were the faithful vassals and confederates of the Franks, and their country was inscribed within the modern limits of Alsace, Swabia, and Switzerland. 
The Bavarians, with a similar indulgence of their laws and manners, were less patient of a master. The repeated treasons of Tassilo justified the abolition of their hereditary dukes, and their power was shared among the counts who judged and guarded that important frontier. But the north of Germany, from the Rhine and beyond the Elbe, was still hostile and pagan. Nor was it till after the war of thirty-three years that the Saxons bowed under the yoke of Christ and of Charlemagne. The idols and their votaries were extirpated, the foundation of eight bishoprics of Munster, Osnaburg, Paderborn, and Minden, of Bremen, Varden, Hildesheim, and Halberstadt, define on either side of the Wesser the bounds of ancient Saxony. These episcopal seats were the first schools and cities of that savage land, and the religion and humanity of the children atoned in some degree for the massacre of the parents. Beyond the Elbe, the Slavi or Slavonians of similar manners and various denominations overspread the modern dominions of Prussia, Poland, and Bohemia, and some transient marks of obedience have tempted the French historian to extend the empire to the Baltic and the Vistula. The conquest or conversion of those countries is of a more recent age, but the first union of Bohemia with the Germanic body may be justly ascribed to the arms of Charlemagne. He retaliated on the Avars, or Huns of Pannonia, the same calamities which they had inflicted on the nations. Their rings, the wooden fortifications which encircled their districts and the villages, were broken down by the triple effort of a French army that was poured into their country by land and water through the Carpathian Mountains and along the plain of the Danube. After a bloody conflict of eight years, the loss of some French generals was avenged by the slaughter of the most noble Huns. The relics of the nation submitted the royal residence of the Shagan was left desolate and unknown, and the treasures, the rapine of 250 years, enriched the victorious troops or decorated the churches of Italy and Gaul. After the reduction of Pannonia, the empire of Charlemagne was bounded only by the conflux of the Danube with the Tais and the Savi. The provinces of Estria, Liburnia, and Dalmatia were an easy though unprofitable accession, and it was an effect of his moderation that he left the maritime cities under the real or nominal sovereignty of the Greeks. But these distant possessions added more to the reputation than to the power of the Latin emperor, nor did he risk any ecclesiastical foundations to reclaim the barbarians from their vagrant life and idolatrous worship. Some canals of communication between the rivers, 
the Saone and the, and the Meuse, the Rhine and the Danube, were faintly attempted. Their execution would have vivified the empire, and more cost and labor were often wasted in the structure of a cathedral. End of chapter 49, part 4 Recording by Dick Durrett, Manchester, New Hampshire, USA